It is right before Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Largely due to the generosity of some folks in the church here, I had the immense privilege of being able to uh, go on a sovereign uh, tour of the UK and we were looking at a lot of the um, notable sites in the United Kingdom of the Reformation. So we were looking at the progression of the Reformation in the UK and I, you folks and others sent me on a trip and that was a kind of a highlight for Kelly and I to be able to go to. We spent a week or a little better with uh, Steve Lawson and Sinclair Ferguson and in that uh, particular trip among other things that were much more notable um, I developed a um, uh, an appreciation for a Scottish dish that is called haggis. How many of you have ever tasted haggis? How many of you have it on a regular basis? Yeah, none. Um, if you don't know what haggis is, look it up sometime and you probably decide you'll never have it again. Anyway, this is not haggis, this is haggii. Uh, they're close. Um, but Haggai, just so we have a little bit of the background of it, is a book that is, takes place uh, over the period of four months. And it is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, the only one being shorter being Obadiah. So we're going to study it uh, today. We're going to, as uh, on times when Paul is absent, we're going to start this as a bit of a series. So I want us to become more acquainted with Haggai. Before we do, let's look to our Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again, Lord, for your word that is ever fresh. Thank you, Lord, for uh, your word that can be written hundreds of years ago and yet has the ability to poke us to instruct us, correct us uh, all these years later. And so, Lord, I would pray that it, your, your word would have its perfect work in our hearts. I would pray, Lord, that our, our um, hearts, our minds would be susceptible and, and teachable to your word. And, uh, Lord, I would pray that you would greatly assist me so that how I teach here is, is helpful. And so, Lord, we commit our time afresh into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Companion books to this would be, for example, the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is a book that was written as the Israelites were being released from the Babylonian captivity, the 70 years in Bab Babylon, and they were coming back to Jerusalem after being absent for 70 years. That is the book of Ezra. Well, this is now about 16 years later. 
that we are going to read about this. And again, I give a little bit of background. When Ezra, actually, um, when Ezra, if you want to maybe turn there for a minute, you can keep your finger in Habakkuk now that you've found it. But if we go to Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, uh, Esther, Job, range. Go to uh, Ezra chapter 3. It says in verse 8, now in the second year, oh actually we should we should go back a bit uh, to verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrenians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus the king of Persia. So written into that is the idea that Cyrus the king of Persia had given official, not just official permission, but also given some funding for them to buy the wood and buy the materials to rebuild their temple. This is pretty important because in under the Mosaic law, you need a functioning temple. You need a functioning priesthood. You need all of those things in order to conduct yourself under the Mosaic law. So a temple is absolutely central. You couldn't do blood sacrifices and all of the things that are required in the Mosaic law uh, in any other place other than in Jerusalem. They had been doing it for a while on the high places and and the Lord was highly critical of that and viewed that as a species of idolatry. So he says there's only one place that I'm going to allow that and that was in Jerusalem. Anyway, so uh, the Cyrus, the king of Persia, understanding that, had given them money to go buy supplies. Uh, verse 8, now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiliah, Shaltiel and Jeshua the son of Zodak and the rest of their brothers and the priests of the, Le of the Levites and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and his brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons and sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad with their sons and brothers uh, the Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So that's the background but this is 16 years later in the meantime there were there was tremendous opposition by some of the surrounding nations in fact the very people that are providing them opposition even today same thing and there were terrorist attacks and they were being misrepresented at uh, the headquarters 
and, and so forth. And so the work got stopped and the work kind of ground to a halt having bought the materials, all the wood, the very fancy fragrant wood and uh, laid the foundation and, and the work kind of ground to a halt. That's the background of when we start looking at the book of Haggai. In the second year, I'm in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shel Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Je uh, Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it, and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, behold, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I, I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Well, what an interesting passage. Um, we need to do a little bit of thinking about this. Is this just some peculiarity that occurs for people who are under the Old Testament economy? Is, the, are these, is this a peculiar treatment where God treats people in this way if they are under the Mosaic Covenant? Or is this something that is also relevant to us and in what way? Well... 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, of course, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture is theonoustos. Theo, God, noustos, breath. And not talking about process, it isn't saying that God somehow took some writings and breathed on it. It is ablative of source. It means that God is the source of what got put down on paper. So there's all kinds of discussion about, well, Paul wrote this and Paul wrote that, but it could be that he was a woman hater, he was a bachelor type, and he had, you know, some, you know, preconceived notions about, and, and that's why he says that, that uh, elders have to be men and so forth, but that's all nonsense because what actually got put down on paper 
God says, I'm the source of it. He claims ownership of what get put down in paper. And so you can make whatever uh, observations you or inferences you wish to about various people. But what got put down on paper, God is the author of. And uh, that's something we have to keep on reminding ourselves of. Uh, while I am doing uh, even our series through the book of Luke, frequently in most of the commentaries that are out there, there are people speculating, well, why did Luke write this? Well, why did Luke write that? What was the source of, his, of, his, of how he wrote and, and his authority behind it? And we have to keep on going back to what scripture says. Why did Luke write this or that? Is it because he was, he was following some mysterious document called Q? No. He wrote it because he was a prophet of the Lord. He was writing scripture and God was overseeing, superintending exactly what was put down on paper, even down to verb tenses and the spelling. It is a tremendously accurate reproduction. So, all scripture is that, theonoustos, and then it is profitable. It's profitable for correction, instruction, training in righteousness, um, that the man of God may be fully fitted out unto all good works. So if we believe this, and I trust we do, then there's surely a group of messages that the church, churches that I have hung out at, have largely neglected, and the churches have been the poorer for it. There are some really bizarre stories in the Old Testament, stories of giant soldiers with six fingers per hand, and men like Samson who smote the Philistines hip and thigh, I love that. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul twice said that these things happened for our example. The story of serpents, the, the ground opening up and Levites slaying the idolaters were written as examples of the destruction of and God's indignation of covetousness to look on other gods as a means of provision when God the Father deliberately does not supply. But there is a group of books that are very often new ground for most, and that is the group of, of um, books that in the Word of God called the Minor Prophets. There's a whole, um, they are whole books of the Bible that provide teaching that according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 is not only profitable, but needed, yet many of us have rarely cracked open the book. Let's take an example, Haggai, that we've started with. Can anyone remember one teaching that is derived from the book? If I handed out a paper and I'd say, here is one of the central points that came out of Haggai, what would you write down? Well, um, I have to say I'm largely to blame for that because I'm supposed to be a teacher and I'm, that's what I'm trying to address right now. I've never preached many messages from this book. We, we just kind of dove into it a little bit at the beginning part of Luke, but I've never really taught the way through, and it's appropriate to do that. Few here have one memory verse from the book that they'd say, oh, I've got a memory verse from Haggai. Uh, or very few, I think, would probably tell the general gist of the book. So I'm going to do a, a mini-series on this mighty book. So, timeline for the book is given in verse 1 of chapter 1. This took place on 
now to convert it to our calendar, August the 29th of B.C. 520. BC, so four months ago plus 2,544 years. This is the time of the writings of both Zechariah and Confucius, just so you have a bit of a connection. The book is written by a chap by the name of Haggai, which means my feast. Haggai, my feast, which is interesting because it is so close to Haggis, but nevertheless. Um, the, the, um, the name when given to a, an individual, a person, generally means the festive or the festal one. Uh, this is like our present situation where parents name their children Noel. In the oil field, I happen to uh, work with two Noels, one on an oil rig up in the, in the Beaufort Sea, and one was a cat skinner I used to hire every chance I got. But, but mo both of them thought that their birthdays were a ripoff. They were called Noel because, of course, they were born on Christmas Day. And so they said, Christmas is fun, but we get ripped off. We get Christmas gifts, but we never get any birthday gifts. Anyway, Noel, they were born on Christmas Day. Haggai, he was born either on uh, probably uh, either Pentecost or on the Passover. Okay, so he didn't get very many birthday gifts. Um, Apart from this, virtually nothing is known about him uh, personally. So the book, as we're looking at it, is a collection of five messages, and they are short ones. Prophets, uh, apparently, are allowed to be short. They're allowed to be concise. While preachers are required to be detailed, exhaustive, and lengthy. You're saying, where in the Word of God does it say that preachers are supposed to be long? Well, that is in Haggai chapter 3, verse 7. That's what I would use for my defense for the idea that pastors need to speak a long time. I don't even see any smiles out there. Okay. Well, I'm going to read this first message, and then we're going to discuss the background of the message, what the message meant to the hearers, and what principles we can extrapolate for new believers. He says here that people had been uh, doing agriculture, doing business, and they had been suffering from the law of diminished returns. Interesting here, he says, consider your ways, which is a, a favorite expression of Haggai. Uh, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're doing, okay? You have sown much, verse 6, but harvest little. At that point in time, you say, well, man, you know, this is just life. We're, we're in a bit of a bad patch in agriculture. I, I don't know. We're having a lot of crop failures. And you just go, you know, that just, that's just kind of one of the things. It kind of happens, right? Um, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. It, it, it's like, does this sound a little bit familiar? It, it's like, man, there's just not enough to go around. And we point to all kinds of temporal things. We say there's inflation, we say cost of living, and we say, you know, the, the 
wages have not adjusted, so forth, but they were exactly in that particular situation. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk, and the idea there is not inebriated, but satiated, where you go, oh, okay, uh, now, now I, 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 I don't need another glass full of that. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. It's like, man, it just, we, the, we don't have sufficient clothing. And he who earns, here's really picturesque, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Have you ever experienced that? Where it seems like there's a lot should be coming in, and you look around and you go, what happened to that? Boy, we noticed that and uh, to our shame or whatever uh, when we were working in Fort McMurray. There was a time I was working in Fort McMurray as a uh, consultant, we were doing a big project. I was making slightly over a thousand dollars a day, and uh, we tried to have it so that it was we it wasn't affecting our standard of living. We wanted to keep our standard of living the same as when we had just come from the pastorate. So we wanted to make sure we were able to be generous. But we were finding, man, all of this money's coming in, and it it was the the quintessential thing that they talk about in being in Fort McMurray, it's like trying to take a drink out of a fire hydrant. There's an awful lot coming and there's a lot going and it's hard to get a mouthful. And, and that is, seems like the Alberta affliction. It's not the Alberta affliction. It was their affliction. It is the affliction of farmers in Saskatchewan. It is the affliction of loggers in BC. It is the affliction of everywhere. And you go, why? Specifically, why do believers have that going on? And here, the scriptures are going to be telling us something. And I don't think this is just something that happens to believers under the Mosaic Law. He says, consider your ways, verse 7. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be glorified with it, and be glorified, says the Lord. He says... Here's, your, here's how you address the issue. Build the temple. And you go, well, no, no. You, 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 haven't, you haven't been listening. We don't have enough to get by. We're, we don't have any excess. So the idea of, as they say, this is not the time to be trying to build because, because we're, we're just struggling. We're just barely making it. This is not the time. And the Lord says, quite the contrary. Go out even into the hills, grab some wood, and get building. Well, what, what's going on here? There's something kind of interesting here. Remember where I read in Ezra chapter 3 that official money had come from the empire, a, a, a um, Gentile empire, to go and buy wood. And they got the fragrant cedar wood that was so desirable. Beautiful wood. Um, when I was rebuilding my boat, I decided I was going to pull out the three-quarter inch plywood that was on the floor and I put in two-inch cedar. Light, strong, the wetter it gets, the tougher it is, and the wetter it gets, the more fragrant. It, it's a beautiful wood, beautiful wood. Well, the, the empire had bought them this kind of wood to be able to start putting their temple. What they would do is they would build big framework and then they would 
they would do the stonework around that, but the, the, the framework was what sort of steadied stuff. And Ezra says, man, there were people who have already provided, the, the materials had been uh, bought, and actually there'd been a whole bunch of stuff being um, donated. Well, why aren't they building? Interesting here. He says, verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house, this house, lies desolate? What had happened to the wood? Oh, that's what had happened to the wood. All the wood was kicking around. They're going, well, we, we're, not, we're not able to build right now. There's, it just, it's just kind of not the right time. But look at this building materials around here. We should do something with it. And so they were taking and they were, even though they weren't very wealthy by their own estimation, they were taking and they were paneling their houses with this beautiful wood. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? But in the meantime, the house of the Lord was left desolate. Now, there isn't a one-to-one -one correlation between the temple of the Lord and a church building. Don't get that. Here's the deal. This particular passage is usually trotted out when a church is about to begin a building program. And so just for your, just so that people are steadied on this, that I know of, we're not starting a, we are not starting a building program. I'm almost at the point that time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be, re I don't think we're about to build a church, not under the circumstances right now. So don't understand that there's something complicit here. Uh, I, I'm not understanding that the church is any, in any particular kind of financial need. There's not an ulterior motive. We're studying the passage to study the passage, okay? But we're studying the passage more for the personal application where believers today could be going, you know, I got this weird thing happening. I, I look at it on paper, we should be having adequate income. I look at it on paper and, and it should be that that stuff is working out. But we get to the end of the month and, and we run out of paycheck before we run out of month. What in the world is happening? And so, the, well, we need a different strategy. We need to nail a budget to the wall. We need all this stuff. And, but there's all these things happening. We, we, we do this farming and, and somehow the crop isn't working out. We, we do this work and somehow the income isn't what we thought it would be. And even if it is, it's insufficient. What is going on? You might be thinking that. Well, here God gives the solution to that. He says, you look for much, verse 9, but behold, it comes to little. Why? But behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. And look at that phrase. I blow it away. Who's speaking? Hezekiah? Hezekiah's running around and trashing their, their checking account? No. God. You're going, well, wait a minute. All these people are in a position where they're kind of struggling. They're just kind of barely making it. And uh, here it is that in the midst of this, they're having all of these troubles. They, they don't, they're never quite having enough. They're never quite making it. They're never quite meeting their needs. Why? Because God says, I blow it away. He's doing something deliberately. Uh, why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, 
while each of you runs to his own house. In other words, priorities. Priorities. You're going, but surely that has nothing to do with our standard of living, our financial circumstance, with what's happening in our world, what's happening in our checking account. No. No. God says, I do this thing where people have a way bigger priority on building their own empire than building the kingdom of God. I do this for people who are far more interested in forwarding their own interests than seeking first the kingdom of God. What he does deliberately, and I would say very consistently, is these people who are working hard, laboring to become rich. By the way, what does that mean? Uh, rich meant that basically that, that I'm no longer dependent. And the idea is I'm no longer dependent. On, we we want to have financial independence. Independence from what? Well, we'd say, well, independence from the idea that I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Independence meaning that I'm not dependent every month, every day, give us this day our daily bread. We don't like that. I mean, we read about that. We read about missionaries and we go, yeah, no, that's, that's, the, that's the right way for them to live. We're, missionaries need to live by faith. And everyone talks about, that's a great idea. Nobody likes to live by faith. Everybody likes to live by faith if they've got about 5,000 squirreled away as a, some sort of a reserve fund and their deep freeze is full. People love living by faith that way. When you really are dependent and you are saying, give us this day our daily bread, nobody really likes to live that way. Anyway, here was a situation where people were far more keyed in on what's good for me, what's good for my financial situation, and they were completely neglecting the building of the temple of God. And you go, okay, so what's the significance of that? First of all, it's this. You can't conduct biblical Judaism under the Mosaic law without a temple. You need a functioning temple in order for the nation to come together, in order for them to be the day of atonement, for them to have the Passover for them to be having the daily sacrifices and so forth. You need a functioning temple. What had happened is they laid the foundation. They got started, they got stopped, and they just sort of, ah, we'll just leave it that. We all know that, right? We've, we've seen that. Some of you have experienced that where um, maybe you started building a house or saw somebody started to build a house and the weather started creeping up on them and so they moved in and and they kind of moved into a half-finished house and they kind of got comfortable with it that way and they they kind of lost their zip for finishing that and making it happen and and, and they just kind of got acclimatized to yeah stuff's not working yeah that's the way it is but you can't do that and, and be obedient to the Lord under the Mosaic law 
and not have a functioning temple. They, they needed, the, there needed to be a priority of people following the Lord in obedience in a temple. And, and they were, it wasn't that there was a lack of resources. Resources were there. The issue was priority. And because the priorities were wrong, God says here, you, you gather stuff, I blow it away. Therefore, verse 10, because of you, because of you. Not because, oh, that's just the way it is. It's bad economy, bad, we're, we're in a bad stretch of, you know, uh, bad, some bad years. Because of you, the sky has withheld its due. Um, when you're on the Mediterranean area there, right where they are, um, strangely enough, they were more dependent on the dews during the hot part of summer than they were in rains. Rains almost never came. But being that close to the Mediterranean, the, the, the gradient difference in the temperature usually produced dew which sort of kept the crops limping along. But he says, because of the way you're treating me, I have organized it. I am orchestrating it where you're not getting your dues, your, the dues on the, on the land. You go, man, it, it would be such a simple thing. In fact, it's a, just a normal thing if the, the country gets dues. That's what normally happens. And he says, I'm blocking that off. I'm blocking that off. The earth has withheld its produce. One of the things that happened uh, back in Genesis chapter 3 with the sin of man was there was a curse put on the earth where it did not bring its full produce and we've been living under that that is one of the things that's going to be um, completely taken away during the millennial kingdom which is wonderful that's a that's a wonderful thing but uh, right now we're still laboring under an earth that is not producing everything it could here, there are lands that are under that curse, but they're under an additional curse. Because God is saying, even under the normal circumstances, when you should be getting a, yeah, okay, kind of a crop, I'm making sure that it never blossoms into anything. Because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought. What? I mean, isn't, isn't God supposed to be blessing us and, and just making it so that everything is just dandy for us? I mean, people easily begin to pray and say, well, Lord, we kind of know that it is undoubtedly your will that, that we get rain and, and that, my, that I have a wonderful job and that I get a raise. And uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, a rather arrogant assumption um, because here it is you, you want to know what is the will of God what is the will of God right now drought the will of God right now is drought that you put seed in the ground you put your fertilizer in the ground and you don't get anything why priorities priorities what you're doing with what you do get God is saying here I am putting things into your hand and watching to see what kind of stewardship you proceed with. And if it's a situation that I give you more stuff and you take that stuff 
and you panel your own house. You build your own empire with it rather than use it for the advancement of the kingdom. I'll start putting something like a, a sovereignty tax on that. And you'll have a good deal less because when I gave you lots, you were not a good steward of it. You were behaving selfishly. And if you're behaving selfishly, I'll take that away. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, on all the labor of your hands. Um, we're not going to have time to finish, uh, of course, all of this. We're, this is a two-parter on this. But um, what do we learn so far? Well, under Haggai, what were the economic uh, conditions? Really, there was plenty all around them, but it seemed that they were incapable of hanging on to it. And that something was happening where every month there were some surprise things coming up and they were always finding themselves short. What were the farming conditions? What were the economic conditions? Returns were less than expectations. And therefore, none of the people were confident that they could do this extra expense, which was being involved in advancing the kingdom of God. How essential was the temple to the Old Testament Judaism? Absolutely, absolutely bedrock essential. But they were content with if it happens or doesn't happen, but let's make sure our house is nice. Was the expense in this sense really an extra? That's a pretty good question. How do you view your personal commitment to advancing the kingdom of God? Is that something that we do when we have quote-unquote extra? Is it sort of a an extra if we happen to have a, a time of extravagance? Or is it an essential? Is it one way or the, the other, we are going to serve the Lord and we're going to try and advance the cause of the kingdom, uh, even if it requires sacrifice on our part? What's going on, right? What did the temple represent to the people? Well, in this time it represented an unwelcome extra expense that in their view was optional. They had other priorities that were bigger, selfishly. What did the temple represent to the house of God? In this case, it was where he says, I want something that is continually bringing glory to God. And, and having a half-started, half-finished progress certainly did not bring any glory to God. And getting now to more personal, why were the crops and incomes poor or insufficient, God was personally preventing them from experiencing any satisfaction with their belongings because of who, in their minds, those belongings belonged to. 
if you ask them a basic question, the stuff, the stuff that's in your world, who does it belong to? You or God? Apparently, these people at this point in time would say, well, no, it, it, it's my stuff. I mean, obviously, it's my stuff. And if I have a little extra stuff, I'll, you know, maybe try and do something for the kingdom of God. And what we're seeing in this era, wrong. What actually we see in the era before the Mosaic Law, the next lesson, even in the, era, in the time of, of Abraham, even in the time before that, perhaps, of Job, has never been the case. It has always been the case where believers who are generally have their hearts moved, who have been born from above, naturally, innately, say, do you know something? There is an enormous emphasis, there's an enormous priority. One way or another, even if it costs us some of the frills in our life, we're going to do something for the kingdom of God. People like that, well, we're going to find out when we get together next time. People like that, there is something that goes on, and I'm going to be taking it from the New Testament. One of the things that goes on is people who are faithful with what little they have, even if they think they haven't got enough, but they're but their intent on building the kingdom of God, Paul says they will have sufficiency of their needs. Hold it a minute. Did you hear that? We're going to study the passage. He said they will have a sufficiency in all of the things that they need and they are going to be granted a additional so that they can be generous. So that is something that has happened before the Mosaic Law, during the Mosaic Law, and even under the age that we're in today. Now, going back just a little bit so that we um, have a, maybe a full-flowered understanding of this. Why is it that there are times where we feel like, man, uh, the income is insufficient. We're, we're just not getting enough. Well, we have to say one of the possible reasons is we can experience want because we're lazy. That can be. That can be in the body of Christ. It can, it can be that the fact that I, I'm not having everything and my needs met because um, really it's a situation of a lack of obedience. As a believer, you're commanded. Work hard. As a believer, you're commanded, work hard, generate a surplus, and give it away. That's what we're commanded to do. So in some cases, it's a lack of obedience. In some cases, it's a lack of faith. If I work really hard, I'll be wore out, and my body will wear out too soon. That's a lack of faith, right? Your, your Lord is able to keep your body in the game. Your Lord is able to keep you and your strength for the next day. Right? Uh, so if we start going, oh boy, I don't want to work too hard because, you know, I, I might wear myself out too quick. That's, that's talk like you are proceeding as an atheist in your background, like there is no God. 
if God is calling you to do something, even if it is a job, even if it is where you're going to work and making a living, if God is calling you to do that, he'll provide the strength for that. So sometimes people don't have enough because they're being lazy. But one of the things we're going to find out as we go through this passage is one of the reasons why sometimes people don't have enough and they're experiencing, it feels like we're taking the income and we're putting it into a purse with holes. It just kind of leaks out on us. One of the reasons why that could be a lack of generosity with building the kingdom of God. We'll talk about that more the next time we get a chance to um, revisit this. But in the meantime, Haggai, building for yourselves purses with holes. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, making us uh, alert to the idea that we can be far more interested and invested in building our own empire and our own kingdom than diverting our time, than diverting our resources, than diverting our strength to the kingdom of God. Help us, Lord, to be those who get up in the morning, die to self, die to our own self-empire, and we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth first. You are the master, I'm the slave. What can I do for you and your kingdom today? Help us to be those people who are day by day practicing the idea that we believe Jesus is Lord. And we ask these things to your glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless. We're dismissed to collect up your children from...